Well, good morning again. It is a pleasure for me to be here with you, and my wife does send her salutations. Um, the normal expectation of a missionary is to preach out of a missions text and to rally the cry for gospel ministry in, in an international way. Um, I, this morning, I'm going to break that mold. This is a sermon that has been dwelling in my heart and been building over the course of a, a few semesters of my studies in um, my PhD studies, and was really a study, a deep dive into ancient Near Eastern mythology and seeing how that relates with the text of Scripture. And so this morning, we're going to be getting into that a little bit. This is not a traditional expositional t- sermon. Just kind of give some, um, some, some clarification as to what this is. It's more of a topositional is what I would like to call it, and for in an expositional style, but we're going to be dealing with the topic of idolatry. And we begin in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 4, but I do want everybody to take their hands out and raise their fingers and do the magic fingers for a minute. We're, we're warming our hands up to move through Scripture. Okay, now that your hands are warmed, let's go to Exodus chapter 20, verse one through four. And so when we talk about this, we, the title of the sermon is Born to Imitate, and we all imitate. We all do it um, consciously or unconsciously. And when I look at the imitation that my daughters do of my wife, it is very fascinating to see how when Catherine was born, Caroline, who is now six years old, Catherine is three, Caroline as a three-year-old would take her baby dolls and treat their baby dolls the exact same way that my wife was treating the baby Catherine. And so they have these baby dolls and they care for their dolls just like their mom. They will comb their hair, they will change their clothes, they will sing lullabies uh, or their versions of the lullabies that they hear from their mom to their baby dolls as they lay these baby dolls in their, their cribs that they have made up. And it's fascinating to watch them imitate their mother, but we all do this. I don't know if you, some of you teenagers can probably relate to this as well now, but some of you who have been removed from your teenage years for a few years, maybe a few decades, in our teenage years, if you think back, we used to imitate those who were around us. And the, result of, and the reason for that was because we wanted to be accepted by the group. Our style of dress is an example. I remember baggy jeans for boys. For me, growing up in southern United States in a very rural area, it was really tight Wrangler jeans with cowboy boots and a gigantic belt buckle. Um, for others, it may have been bell bottoms. Uh, but we all imitate. We listen to the same music, or you see guys getting earrings because the other guys around them have earrings, or whatever it may be. We imitate as just part of who we are. God created us to reflect. And when you look at Genesis 1 and you see how God created us, it is assumed that we will reflect his glory. We always reflect, but the question is, what do we reflect? We reflect consciously and unconsciously, And so my question for you today to be thinking about this as we move through this is what do we reflect in the culture today as we evaluate us as imitators being called to imitate God? And at the core of who we are, we are imitators. We will always be imitators. Either we imitate something in creation or we imitate the creator. And so we begin here in Exodus chapter 20 with really a definition of idolatry. And if you look with me, it says in verse 1, it says, God spoke to all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
Notice that phrase, it's important because we will be seeing it again in Exodus 32. It says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the exclusivity of the worship of Yahweh. Yahweh does not, he, he cannot tolerate worship of other gods. He alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of glory and adoration. And so by the very nature of who he is, he decrees, you shall have no other gods before me. And now look at verse 4. It says, you, not, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And he says in verse 5 here, he says, for I, the Lord, I, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So we look at this and we see, first he says, you shall not have any gods before me. And verse 3 relates with verse 4, but verse 4 adds a little bit of clarification with this. Where we're not supposed to create idols. We're not supposed to not just have other gods. It is assumed that these other gods will have their idols in verse 2. Or verse 3. It is assumed that these other gods are going to have their idols, given the context of the ancient Near East, of Egypt, of Assyria, of Babylon, of the Canaanites, of all of the other nations that were around Israel or living and inhabiting in the same land as Israel. They all had their gods who had these idols, these forms of statues overlaid with gold or silver or wood. And so it's naturally assumed there. And so for, for most people, they would just assume that verse 4 is still talking about those idols. You shall not have any other gods. But it does point to that, but it also comes down to the very nature of how we worship God himself. When it says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or anything, a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is below, or the earth that is below, it is referring first, applied directly to idolatry. I applied directly to these idols. You can't worship these things that you make. But it also applies to the worship of God. You see, we begin with this definition of idolatry here where it, it refers to images or statues that are tangible, but it also refers to an intangible worship or a worship of an intangible God, a God that we cannot worship through nature. Now, when you consider the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world, Israel adopted theology from them throughout much of their history. I'm not saying God adopted theology or that Moses adopted. I'm talking about the nation of Israel adopting theology from the nations around them and applying it to God and trying to worship God in the same way that they worship the other gods of the nations. And so when you see in Babylon, for example, you have what is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have a story that relates to our flood story. It's a parallel uh, ancient Near Eastern text that parallels very, very well with our flood story. And so we would look at this and we would say, okay, so this is common truth pointing back to an event. And so this is remnants of truth in this culture but in this culture, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have these gods. And so these gods, they get frustrated with the people of earth, not because of any moral issue. When you look at scripture, you find that God judges the earth through the flood because of a moral issue. They get frustrated with these people because they're making too much noise. These gods are frustrated, and the Epic of Gilgamesh, it writes and it shows how they're angry with them, and so they send this flood, save two people, and then when those two people come out of the flood after several days, 
and then instead of, instead of almost a full year like we find in Scripture, after several days they come out of this flood and they offer a sacrifice to the gods. And it describes these gods as, as almost like flies circling and attacking garbage because they're so hungry. You see, these gods depended upon human sacrifices for food. And so you see this over and over and over. And one of the aspects of the ancient Near Eastern world is that these gods were almost made in the image of man. And so these gods, when you look at the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world, these gods had continuity with nature. They were one with nature. And they, 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 when you look at the images that they have, so when they create these images and they make a statue for Baal, for example, the ancient Near Eastern religions or the ancient Near Eastern cultures of Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, and so on and so forth, they would look at this statue, and it's not just that they're worshiping the statue thinking that Baal hears them. They believe that Baal inhabits and dwells in this image. And so also these gods, these had, they had continuity with nature. And so in regards to that, we're thinking of Baal, for example, because we know from 1 Kings chapter 18, the battle between Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. And when they're calling for Baal, who is the storm god, he, he is the god of, of fertility, of, of the, the harvest. And so this god who is represented, not just represented, he is the storm coming and leaving water for the crops. And so when you see these people, they're calling out to, to Baal, and they're, they're, they're hoping that Baal, as who is one with nature, who is the storm, will send his, will come and have his presence and light on fire this altar. That's what they're believing. And so they see these as, for example, Pharaoh, who is the representation of Ra, the sun god. He is not just the physical representation of God. He is the embodiment of Ra. And so when you look at this, you see that they have continuity with nature, whereas when we study our scriptures and we see God, he is transcendent. He is not part of nature. He is separated from nature. While we may, we may see the tree or we may see the flower and we worship God because of the beauty that we find in the flower, and God is everywhere at all times. He is omnipresent. God is not that tree. He is not that flower. Whereas the ancient Near Eastern world, they understood that he was, that these gods were that. And so these gods, they also reflect man in their attitudes and their actions. And so like with the example of the Epic of Gilgamesh, these gods, they get frustrated. They get angry and they're capricious. They get hungry. And in all these aspects, they're, they're representing or they're, they're, they're showing basically that they are gods made in the image of man. And so these idols containing the presence of God and these, these people worshiping these idols, they could manipulate these gods. They can manipulate them and by offering sacrifices or withholding sacrifices. I don't know if any of you have seen the old versions of Clash of the Titans or even the new one that they came out with about 15 or 20 years ago. But in that, that still translates into Greek mythology as well, where Perseus has a battle with the gods, is a human man, half human, half divine, battles against the gods and defies the gods. And the people get frustrated with Zeus because he's not being good to them. They stop worshiping and Zeus loses is his power. 
because he is dependent upon man. And they can manipulate. And that's the exact same thing you find throughout all of the ancient Near Eastern texts. The extant copies and uh, manuscripts and texts that we have in, in inscriptions of these stories of the Epic of Gilgamesh or another one on the creation story, Enuma Elish, where the god Marduk of Assyria uh, has a battle with Tiamat and he kills Tiamat and he takes Tiamat's body and buries her in the ocean to create dry land. And the blood that falls from him from this battle creates humans and these gods they reflect men they're angry they're frustrated they get they are they're capricious they are made in the image of men and so when we look at this and we see where it says you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or anything likeness this is God showing that he is distinct from the nations he is distinct from the gods of the nations he is not found in nature he cannot be represented by anything that is in nature while they believe that the divine presence could be contained in an image, you cannot create an image of Yahweh. And it's prohibited because first, God did not reveal himself in an image to give him an image in order to worship him is idolatry. And then also he is transcendent. He is not a part of nature. He is creator and therefore separate from his creation. God is not the world and cannot be identified with the world and cannot be manipulated through the world. God is distinct. He is not like the gods of the Israel's neighboring nations. And worshiping a part of creation is robbing God of the glory that he alone deserves. He is the only being that deserves glory. And so idolatry, in essence, is substituting God as the object of worship. And so if you will go with me to Exodus chapter 32, we'll see how this plays out in a practical way right here, with just shortly after Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. This is a famous passage we all know of the infamous golden calf uh, situation or, or story. And when you look at this in Exodus chapter 32, we'll focus, we're going to start in verse, verse 1. I'm hoping you've arrived. It's only a couple pages later. It says in verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down from the mountain, this is Mount Sinai, where he's receiving the law of God, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened of him. And so when we look at this, we see it, make us gods. That's the translation in the ESV. And this is in a plural, make us gods, make us idols. And when we read through this text, as we're going to in just a moment, what we're going to see is that the, there, is, there is this concept of a plural majestic in Hebrew, which is Elohim. And when you see the word Elohim, when they, they said um, the, Lord, the Lord your God is, is the, the Yahweh Elohika, which is the Elohim, the, second pers or the third person uh, plural of that. And so it's looking, saying this is your God, the Lord your God, but Elohim is the word for the single God. It's called a majestic plural. And so when they ask for this, they say, up, make us Elohim. Make us gods, as it's translated in English, but it could very well be translated singular. And it says, as for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. And so Aaron said, take out the gold rings that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands, fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now, why did he make a golden calf? 
The golden calf, this has puzzled expositors and uh, commentators for a long time, and they try to point at something in Egypt that is the, the representation, the golden calf is representing some god from Egypt, but there is no parallel in Egypt. Remember, these people have just come out of Egypt, so they're going to look more like Egypt than they are the children of God. They've spent 400 years, and they almost don't even recognize who Yahweh is when he arrives on the scene and delivers them. And so they say he, he forms this golden calf, and it has no parallel with any Egyptian god. And so when you look in the next verse, it says, These are your Elohim, your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember Exodus 32, or, or, or verse, chapter 20, verse 2? It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses is, is receiving from the Lord God, whereas Abraham, in this instance, is now taking the, a concept of Elohim, or Yahweh, who has brought them out. They don't know how to worship him. So what do they do? They build a calf. Because, as remember, the ancient Near Eastern world, you had to have an image to worship this God. So that way this God can inhabit, and then you can offer these sacrifices to this image. And so what's happening is they're coming out of Egypt, not understanding that God is transcendent from nature. They're using the Egyptian theology and ideology to then create an idol for Yahweh. To create an idol for God, for Elohim says, this is the who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Look at verse 5. It says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar, and it, Aaron made a proclamation, said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, the Lord. They're connecting this directly with the God of the Bible. You're directly connecting this with the God who has just delivered them. They don't know this God, and they don't know how to worship him, and so the first thing they do is a violation of the second commandment, you shall not make any graven image. And so the first thing they do is they make a graven image of something that is in creation, a golden calf, and they worship that golden calf thinking they are worshiping Yahweh. But instead, what they have done is they have changed the nature of a transcendent God and identified him with something in nature and they're worshiping him through nature, essentially. And so they're borrowing theology from Egypt. And if you look at the rest of this passage, it says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and, burnt, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. They eat, drink, and rose up to play. Revelry, as another translation might say. They eat, drink, and they rise up to engage in all sorts of Evil desires, which is the way that you worship an ancient Near Eastern God. They don't understand the distinctiveness of Yahweh yet. But Moses comes down and, as you well know, finds this scene, declares that this is moral sin beyond you can even imagine. Frustrated and angry, God decides he's, he's, he's going to kill. Moses intercedes for the people, and they, they eventually he burns, it, burns this thing down, melts it down, gives them to drink the, uh, the gold from this idol, and then he says, those who are on the Lord's side, step over here. And all who stepped over, they were then commanded to kill the idolaters. And that's how serious God takes this. And so when we look at the history of Israel, we see that Israel, Israel struggles with idolatry. 
This concept of idolatry is substituting God as the object of worship, but it's not just substituting and worshiping other gods. They struggle and they mix. They do this theological mixing and they worship God with these other gods and they struggle. And so idolatry permeates the history of Israel and the relationship with God. And when you look at the history of the kings, you read through the kings and you see the, the repeatedly one after another, after another, after another, does not follow God and worships all of these other gods around them, all of these other idols, and they struggle with this. So much so that the, the creation of the temple in first, uh, Second Kings chapter six through eight, and it gives the story of the creation of the temple, or the, the the story of the creation of the temple, and the picture of the temple. And when you look at the description of the temple, you see all sorts of images of winged creatures and of bulls and stuff like that that were never given to Israel. So even in the creation of the temple by Solomon. It's incorporating theology that he's getting from other gods. And so when you arrive in Jeremiah chapter 7, that's where we're going to go next. I'm glad you guys have your, your hands warmed up. We're going to Jeremiah chapter 7 now. When you arrive at the prophets, you see that the focus of their message was the idolatry of Israel. And just before the exile, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are the that are prophesying that really hit this concept of idolatry. And so just before the, the, the exile, both of these are, prophes are prophesying and, and basically calling Israel as, as covenant enforcers, as those who are enforcing the covenant that Israel has made with God and are, are accusing Israel of having broken that covenant, are then using their idolatry as an example of how they have done so. And so Jeremiah speaks to the nation of Israel here in chapter 7, and it says, uh, I'll start in verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from, or the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, so this is the temple, and proclaim there his, this word, and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So all these men are coming in to worship Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. They're coming in to worship Yahweh. And he says, say to these people who are coming in here to worship me, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, you, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave to your fathers forever. It says, Behold, you trust in these deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? That's the question. That's the accusation that God has against them. That their hearts have been, they, they, they're coming in to worship Yahweh, but their hearts have been taken away. And Ezekiel, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 8, you don't have to go there right now, or we're not even going there today. But if you go to Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel chapter 8 through 14 gives visions of Ezekiel, uh, or to Ezekiel, of the temple. And so there's this vision where he's put, and he digs a hole in the side of the temple, and he comes in, and he sees the temple is just lined with idols, and you have people there worshiping Tammuz, and you have people there worshiping all of these other gods the, of the Babylonians and of the Assyrians, and they're worshiping them, and they have their, their back to the temple, they're facing the east, and they're worshiping this god, or these gods, 
at the same time that they're worshiping Yahweh. It's so much so that at the end of that, in verse, eight, in verse 18 of chapter 8 of Ezekiel, Yahweh says, or God says, that he almost feels like a stranger in his own house. And that's what's taking place. But when you look at this, and they're coming into the temple, and they're saying, the temple, the temple, and they're saying, we will be delivered. We are delivered by being in this temple. This is borrowing, once again, from ancient Near Eastern mythology, where you have this concept of divine abandonment. And so you remember in the story of David and Goliath, you remember Goliath out there mocking the God of Israel because nobody will come and fight him. And so Goliath is saying, my gods are greater than your God. My gods are better than your God. We march under the banner of the Philistine gods. And so what does Moses, or what does Abraham, or not Moses, um, David say? He says, are we going to stand here? Are we going to stand around and let God be mocked like this? And so he goes out, and you know what he says right before he kills him? He says, I am doing this today so that the nations may know that there is a God in Israel. This is a battle of the gods. And so there's this concept that if a nation comes in and they defeat another nation, they do so because their gods defeated or were more powerful than the gods of that nation. And so if a god, if, a, if an army under the banner of, a, of, a single, of another god or another nation defeats and takes over the temple of that other god, it is considered divine abandonment of that temple. So that god has abandoned it because if he was there, he would have protected his temple. And so the nation of Israel at this point, having worshipped all these other gods and doing all these abominations and, 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 and just being wicked, evil people, are running into the temple and they're saying, we have the temple here in Jerusalem. We are delivered. We are saved because God will not let his temple be, or Yahweh will not let his temple be defamed or be, 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 be violated by these other gods. He is going to defend us. But God tells them, he says, do not trust in these deceptive words because I will, I will send a nation to destroy you because of your unfaithfulness to me. But it's not just that they've started worshiping the other gods and they're not worshiping God anymore. It's that they've added idolatry and they've added idol worship to their worship of Yahweh. And now their worship of Yahweh reflects more the worship of other nations and the worship of other gods then it does what we find of how Yahweh describes his worship should be. And so the nation of Israel, is they never actually stopped worshiping. They just mixed. They mixed the worship of Yahweh with the worship of all these other idols. And really and essentially what it is, is worship of self. Because these other gods, you can manipulate them. You can control them. They think like me. They act like me. And so therefore, I can come in here and I can treat this temple like my lucky charm and God's going to protect me because I worship him. It doesn't matter that I worship all these other gods. It doesn't matter that I have all this plurality of idols here. Idolatry mixes worship of the Lord with worship of self. Now we have an example here. Of, for example, materialism. Materialism would be a modern-day example where we think materialism is, oh, it's just a love of money or it's a love of things or it's a love of having the latest iPad or the latest whatever. And it's, it's not exactly that. It's finding value, identity. It's finding peace and security in the material things that we have. And so we don't, when we're materialistic, we don't actually stop worshiping Yahweh, do we? We still come to church. We still, we still sing songs to him. But we're, we're using him in kind of the same way that the nation of Israel was using Yahweh in that day. 
We don't stop worshiping. Instead, he essentially becomes a tool to get what we want, that which, finds, that which brings us our peace and our security. This language is very common in the Old Testament, and we see this over and over where Israel is borrowing from the other gods. And so if you'll go with me real quickly to Psalm chapter 115, Psalm 115, we have one more text after this. It'll be Matthew 13. If you want to go ahead and while I'm speaking, find that one and put your bulletin there. Psalm 115 is the first text. And so this is where the Bible talks about the impact. And this is a very common thing. You find it also in Isaiah 6, 8 through 9. You find it in Isaiah 44, 9 through 18. You find it in, in Micah. You find it over and over in the prophets. This same type of language we're going to see here in Psalm 115. So if you look with me, verse, chapter 115, we're starting in verse 4. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, or feet, or hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. These are the idols. Their idols are just statues. They're inanimate objects. And Isaiah 44 describes the, 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 the building of an idol, how they fashion the wood and they overlay it with gold and they says, this is my God and it's ridiculousness, right? They don't, they don't actually respond. They don't actually do any of this stuff. And then look at verse eight. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So how do we become like them? So when we worship idol or we have idolatry in our lives, we become like that which we worship. That's what the, the, the theme of that carries over. It does it again in Isaiah chapter 6 where God is saying, who will go forth? And Isaiah says, I will go. And then he says, you say to these people, they are blind, deaf, dumb. They don't speak. They are spiritually blind, deaf, and dumb. They're spiritually unable to recognize the truth. And that's what it's showing here is that those who worship idols, those who practice idolatry, their spiritual discernment is, is, is lessened to the point where they are spiritually deaf. They are spiritually blind. They have, we have spiritual hands and feet, but we can't walk and we can't talk and we can't move. And we find that these idolaters, they have these physical eyes, but they can't see spiritually. They have ears, but they can't hear spiritually. They are blind and deaf spiritually. And so in contrast with the gods of the ancient, of the pagans of the Old Testament, who were united with, God, with nature, the God of Israel is distinct from nature. These gods, like I've said over and over, and I'm just reiterating it, these gods depend on human worship, whereas the God of the Bible does not depend on us. We depend on him. God is omnipotent in creation, but he is not creation and so when we look at this and we see how they are trying to manipulate these gods that really have no, no abilities, they can't do anything. They're trying to manipulate these gods through offerings and through sacrifices and laying this out. And so the smoke that rises up from this offering that I give feeds this God and then he will in turn do something for me. It's somewhat of the same thing that we do when we try to manipulate God. God cannot be manipulated. Our tendency is to recreate the God of the Bible made in our own image. 
Our tendency is to say, okay, so this is what the Bible says, but I'm not exactly liking this, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this slightly. And we don't do it on purpose, like intentionally sitting down and saying, yeah, but it happens. It happens more often in scholarship, and it trickles down through commentaries, and it comes down to the church in that form. But when we look at this, for example, have you heard the statement, love is love? You heard the statement, God is love, and God loves me. It's true, God is love, God loves us. But his love is mitigated by his holiness. His love is, does not violate his holiness. But they use this to say God is love and love is love, and so therefore God will not condemn me in what now I have redefined as not a sin. And that is not the God of the Bible. That is God recreated in, in the image of man. It is a God that now we can control and we can manipulate. We can make him think and act and talk like us. That's our natural tendency. Since the, cre- since, since the fall in the garden, what did, what did Adam and Eve want to do? They wanted to become like God. That's, why, that's the, the lie that Satan sold them, is you can become like God. And that's essentially what we want. That is our human nature. We want a God that we can control. And ultimately, idolatry is nothing more than self-worship. It's creating a God for ourselves that we can control. It's a God that thinks and acts like us. And we always want this God that we, can, that we have control over. And just like the human, human man was the base of all of the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world, when we worship God in a way that is not shown in his scripture and we treat God and we define him in ways that we do not find here through a faithful, through a faithful interpretation of the text, we're essentially worshiping ourselves. We're essentially worshiping and we're making God to look like us. In idolatry, we make God like us. Go with me to Matthew 13 real fast. And we'll see how this comes up. Christ, quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 6-9, takes that, which is an idolatry passage, similar to the Psalm 19 or 115 verse that we just read, or the similar Psalm 115 text, Jesus Christ takes that and he applies it to the Pharisees. So if you look with me at verse 10, Matthew 13, verse 10, it says, Then the disciples came to him. Why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you speak to the Pharisees in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has will, more will be given, he will have an abundance from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so when we talk about, when we read this text, there are some who would say, well, God's blinding the Pharisees so that way they can't see and they can't understand, and Jesus is intentionally hiding. But no, there's this concept of hidden wisdom that you find in, in, the, in the Old Testament, and you find it in uh, the Jewish tradition of wisdom. There's this concept of hidden wisdom that is only available through an active seeking of wisdom of God. And so when Jesus Christ is saying this, to you it has been given, but to them it has not. To you it has been given to understand these things, but to them it's not. The reason why it has not been given to them is because they had it. They had truth. It was there. It was right there within their grasp, but they rejected truth. And to the one who has been given and rejects it is taken away. And so Jesus is telling them, he, to, to his disciples, he's saying, they don't understand these things because they are not seeking me in the proper way. And so when you come down to verse 14, it says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Sorry, verse 13, let's go back. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull with their ears that they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and with their heart and with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. The Pharisees are seeing but not hearing or seeing but not seeing. They're hearing but not hearing because they are blind and deaf, spiritually speaking. And so for the Pharisees, the law had converted itself into an idol. Legalism is a form of idolatry. Because remember, an idol is whatever thing that substitutes worship of God in our lives. And so legalism as a form of idolatry tells us that we can manipulate God and we can put God in our debt. It's the idea of, well, I found $20 on the ground because I tithed. Oh, I know God's blessing me because I tithe. Or I'm going to give this because I don't want to receive the punishment, and therefore I'm giving 10% of my giving or 10% of my income to God because I want God to bless me in my life. At that point, God is nothing more than a lucky charm. It's what we do when we say, well, I live a moral life, and so therefore God is going to bless me. And the reason why, for example, when someone leaves a church, a very legalistic church, I've heard this on several occasions, and unfortunately is very common, for when someone leaves a church for problems with the pastor, for, his, for, for problems with his preaching or his teaching or the doctrine, or they, they move out of what would be called King James-only-ism, and they move out, and then all suddenly something happens to them afterwards. And their son, or in the case of what happened with me with the youth, one of the, one of the families of our church left the church because of doctrinal heresy. And I mean, now I can recognize this doctrinal heresy. They leave the church and their daughter dies in a car accident. And it is said from the pulpit, that is the hand of God judging them because they left our church. Whew. God, in that case, reflects more of man than what we find in Scripture. God, in that case, in their form of legalism, is nothing more than self-worship and creating this God that they can manipulate and control through their actions, through their keeping of a moral law, through their keeping of morality, or through their keeping of convictions. That's legalism. It's a form of idolatry. Today, idolatry appears in more non-literal forms, we don't exactly have as many idols that we would put on our shelf and worship alongside of our worship of God, but we do it in non-literal forms, but the result is the same. The result is worshiping, the worship of God has been replaced with worship of ourselves. For an example, in the Dominican Republic, we have, we, we don't have any manufacturers of cars. Like here in Detroit, you guys have just bajillions of them. You guys, you guys have cars that are made just down the road. In the Dominican Republic, all of our cars are imported. They come from overseas. And we have some that come from China that are just absolutely pitiful, that fall apart within a couple years. And they're really super cheap. And they're usually clone copies of American cars. For example, Land Rover. They did one, and the Chinese brought in one that looked exactly like clone copy of a Land Rover, even had the Land Rover sticker on it, and was being sold for about a third of the price of a normal Land Rover. And so that's the, how we get vehicles. But if you want a vehicle that's of good quality, you're going to import that vehicle from the United States. And so when it, in the process of importing, there's really only one company that has a monopoly on the importation of vehicles, and they put on their, on their cars in the windows, they put this giant yellow sticker. It's huge, and it gives the date. It gives the place where it was imported from. And when you go to a dealership, you look for the cars that have the stickers. 
because those are the cars that are, have been imported within the last five years because you can't import a car that is over five years as part of the law of the Dominican Republic. So it's a recently imported and a fairly new vehicle. And so you're looking for that. But what happens is when people buy these cars, that sticker stays on that car for a really long time because that sticker is a status symbol. That sticker says to everybody else on the interstate, hey, I can afford a recently imported car. To the point where shortly after we arrived, Jeremy and I laughed about this and we, we constantly made joke of it. There was a car that in, in the parking lot of our, our grocery store, we're walking in and we see this 2003-2004 Toyota Corolla with a yellow sticker that was no longer yellow. It was more faded white. And we said, this man loves his car. It's a form of idolatry. It really is. When we start looking at it, and I'm not saying that having a new vehicle is sin, but sin enters when we find our value and our identity in the material things. We find our peace and our security and all of that in the material things. And so like Israel, treating, trying to worship God at the same time that they were worshiping all these other idols, we do the same thing in a non-literal way. It happens with, with sports, for example. And I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. And I played sports growing up. I played AAU basketball and was gone from about April to September. You did not see me or my family in church because basketball was our idol. Because basketball was what we wanted to do. And so when we think about this idea that those who worship these idols become like them, when I'm surrounded by all these people playing basketball and my love for basketball and it starts to define my life and then all of a sudden all of the bad influences that are the rest of the people who are playing basketball who are not worshiping on Sundays, I'm not saying all basketball players are bad, but I'm saying that when you get around a certain group of people, what do you start to do? You start to imitate them. And that same thing happened with me. And when we place priority over sports, we place priority of sports over church, or we place priority of sports over, over relationship with our children, and we start putting this, this, all of our hopes and dreams in this child being able to be the best high school basketball player, high school baseball player there ever was, and that becomes our focus, and that becomes our drive, and that becomes everything we talk about, and we live our lives vicariously through our children. It's an idol. And we don't stop worshiping God. We just are worshiping him at the same time that we're worshiping ourselves. And so when we talk about idols, you can't worship God and an idol at the same time. And you know which idols are yours, and I know which idols are mine. They're different. We might share some idols. I mean, we can talk about our idols later on if you want to. But you know which ones are yours, and I know which ones are mine. But in the end of, end of, at the end of the day, we want to worship a God who is like us. And so when you think about the syncretism of the nation of Israel and how they were mixing the worship of God with all these other idols, we have what today, what I would classify as ideological idolatry. And ideological idolatry is a form of syncretism that redefines the character of God to be in agreement with the secular social agenda. And so this would be where you'd find liberation theology, where all of a sudden my focus is on race issues, and so I'm going to see everything from the Exodus all the way through in terms of liberation, in terms of God liberating the oppressed. Because that's 
allowing secular theory to impact and change our interpretation of Scripture, or the LGBTQ plus community that now tries to redefine the nature and the character of who God is and say that the Bible doesn't actually talk about homosexuality. It doesn't talk about gender issues. And when you go to Exodus or you go to Leviticus or you go to the Old Testament and you show where God clearly talks about it, they say, oh, well, in Romans, that was cultural, or in 1 Corinthians 6, that's, that's, a, that's a bad definition. That's, that's actually pedophilia. And then when you get to Leviticus and you get to uh, Genesis chapter 18, I don't actually believe that those things were real, that Moses was real. And those actually didn't happen. And that's just propaganda literature from the time of Josiah, from a priest and priestly editor who then formed this to legitimize the reign of Josiah during his reforms. Those are literal things that I have read in the past year from theological scholars that are writing textbooks and commentaries. And those things trickle down and they give, unknowingly, they give the LGBTQ community their legitimate arguments against a God who condemns homosexuality. And in that case, God now is defined in terms of, of man. God then becomes to start to reflect man and, and God doesn't condemn it because God loves and I love and I'm not going to judge and, and so therefore I'm going to prove and, and, and be, be, be affirming of who you are and what you want and what, whatever, whatever you decide. I'm affirming you and God affirms you as well. Those are the arguments that are, you're, you're facing whenever you talk with someone and I'm sure there are churches probably within just a five-mile radius here who would preach and teach that exact thing of what I have just said. And that's an idol. That's a, that's a form of changing who God is to conform to who we want him to be. Because we don't want the God that we find in Scripture. The God that we find in Scripture is holy. The God we find in Scripture is one who where when we step into his presence, we have to say like Isaiah, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a nation of unclean lips. I cannot stand in your presence because you are so holy and I am so sinful. We don't want that type of God because we are accountable to that God, and that God comes with justice, and that God comes with judgment of sin. But you know what? In order to try to reduce that God... In order to try to make that God more palatable, we, we change who he is and we focus on grace and we focus on love and we focus on what would be called the, the, the gospel of Jesus is, is, is love and it's, 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 it's being tolerant. And Jesus doesn't condemn these things, but when you, know, when you read scripture and you read what Christ actually said, he does. And that's part of the gospel message of you have offended a holy God, repent and come to him and submit yourself to him as your Lord. That's, that's the message of the gospel. And if you're here today and you are not a, a convert of Christ, if you are not someone who has been converted to Christ and you are not someone who is, worship, is, is, a, is a true Yahweh worshiper, evaluating your life and saying, you know, I don't really know that God. Your, your path in that is repentance and saying, I am going to submit to what I find here of who you are, and I am going, I trust in you, I believe in you, and he will save you. That's, that's the message of the gospel. When we come to Scripture, we see that we conform. We always conform. 
Romans 12.12, you don't have to go there because you probably haven't memorized. Romans 12.12 talks about the transformation of our mind and be not conformed to this world. And so we, we always conform, we always reflect. What are you going to reflect? Are you going to reflect the world? Are you going to reflect Christ? Are you going to allow the world to define who you believe God is? Are you going to allow, are you going to capitulate to society and say, yes, that is what I find in Scripture because society tells me that that is morally correct? Or are you going to worship Christ? Are you going to elevate elements of your life to a point of more importance of peace and security and, and hope in aspects of your life of materialism or, or whatever it may be? I'm not going to fill in the blank for you because they're different. But it's a, the call today is an evaluation of how we worship God. Do we come to worship God because we're really looking to, for a better way to worship ourselves? Or do we worship God because of who he is? And we worship God as who he is without changing him. That's the question. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it challenges us. Lord, I, I thank you that you have stepped into history and you have revealed yourself through history, that you decided that you would not, you, you weren't going to be a God who, did not, who sets the world in motion and leaves it. No, you are active in history. You are active in the world. You have revealed yourself, and we have that in Scripture. We, have, we can see and we can know who you are, and I pray that you will help us to be faithful to what we find here and that it will have authority over us instead of us placing ourselves in authority over it and deciding that we don't like it and changing it. Lord, I pray that we will submit to your word and submit to you as we find you in your word. Father, I love you. I pray that you will help us to show you that we love you by keeping your commandments, that we will keep your commandments. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.